The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Act, Moral Hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, we're back for part two. Indeed we are. No one would argue. How are you, Matt? (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing well. So, of course, what I'm talking about is this is part two of our uh, abdominal pain episode. Uh, We're talking about physical exam specifically for patients presenting with abdominal pain. So if you haven't heard the first one, people can go back and check that out. This is the Curbsiders. And, Paul, can you tell people very briefly, what do we do on this show? Sure. We don't do anything very briefly. That's one of the complaints about our show. <laughs> but we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical roles and practice changing knowledge. And really, you summed up much of what we went through. This is part two of our amazing uh, abdominal pain examination episode. And of course, we have the great Justin Lee Burke here uh, to tell us all about it. We're very excited to have Dr. Andrew Olson, who is an expert clinician, teacher, educator, and diagnostician, really go through the evidence-based physical exam and how to integrate it into clinical decision-making when approaching an individual that has abdominal pain. Uh, Thanks for joining for part two. This is great. I think that uh, covers a lot of the, the urgent abdominal pain that we had. And then I think maybe the next um, three vignettes, we can almost do like a rapid fire of what are things that you're thinking when a patient presents with a slightly different history. So our next patient, so Mr. Crowley, again, a 55-year-old gentleman, 30-pack year smoking history and hyperlipidemia is coming with abdominal pain. On your initial exam, he really has no peritoneal signs, no rigid abdomen, nothing that you're super concerned about, an urgent uh, abdomen. So you sit down, you have a little bit more history. He says the pain's been going on actually for a few weeks. It's a sharp pain across his upper abdomen and is usually when he goes out to eat, um, but it is at the worst on his right side. It's much worse with spicy foods, uh, and he feel like he can only eat soup and bland bread. So this type of history, I think, points us a little more towards uh, like a peptic ulcer disease picture. And so knowing this history, has your physical exam changed? Are you not going to touch his belly at all, or what are you thinking? Yeah, about? so so I actually find the, the patient with the subacute or even chronic intermittent abdominal pain to be extraordinarily challenging to determine and because physical exam is going to be less helpful here because I really don't think this patient has cholecystitis. Maybe this patient has cholelithiasis, uh, in which case, again, physical exam is going to be less helpful because physical exam is really good at finding inflammation and swelling um, and things like that, but it's less good at, at, at some of these more intermittent things. And so I think that that's just one thing that we have to realize in this. But again, I would frame here, I would take a step back from the physical exam and actually say, what pretest probabilities of disease do we have? And if I had a positive test, is it, am I even going to get close to that treatment threshold? I don't think he has cholecystitis. His pretest probability of cholecystitis is like 0.5%. So if I apply a positive likelihood of three to that, I'm still at like 1.5% or something. It's not really going to get me substantially higher, high enough that I'm going to do anything differently. Um, and so, so again, with a low test, pretest probability of most of those things, appendicitis, cholecystitis, cholelithiasis, I would consider, but that's not a diagnosis made on physical exam. That's a diagnosis that's made, frankly, on imaging, 
um, and sometimes advanced imaging. And, you know, often the history really matters there. And so, unfortunately, I think a lot of these physical exam findings are going to be pretty dissatisfying in this patient. Um, and I think that doesn't surprise us. That said, it's important to do the exam to rule out this patient who surprises you and, oh my gosh, they actually do have a rigid abdomen and there's something that needs to be done here. As well as, this is again, a guy who's really at risk for some atherosclerotic disease. And I, I would think about that as well. Um, knowing that, by the way, for but, but history is going to be really important for that kind of long-standing abdominal pain. Um, and then the company it keeps becomes much more important here. Um, is the patient losing weight? Um, and so you, uh, the unintentional weight loss without pain is worse than unintentional weight loss with pain. But there we actually consider even things like like presumptive therapies. So I think, unfortunately, it's it's going to be challenging to find a slam dunk for any of this, uh, sorry, Paul, uh, to be terribly helpful. Um, but again, history, um, and then saying it doesn't appear to be one of these acutely bad things, um, it gives us a little time to work up um, and then figure out what that next step is. And then let's say that the history is a little bit different. And it, rather than having this right upper quadrant pain, uh, Mr. Coley saying he has epigastric pain, he has a history of alcohol use, drinking about a six pack of beer before going to sleep each night. And the abdomen has really been hurting every time he tries to eat. He's been taking some Tums, which hasn't really helped. He has some nausea and vomiting and is really having trouble keeping PO down. He seems to be presenting with what we think of as, as pancreatitis, although it's difficult to assess for sure. In this patient, is it the same thing? What are the things that are changing how the physical exam is affecting your decision making? So acute pancreatitis uh, is a little bit different disease here because acute pancreatitis is, is a disease that that requires a little different management than a patient who might have gastritis or peptic ulcer disease. Acute pancreatitis is associated, remember it's the prototype for a non-infectious inflammatory illness that makes you sicker than stink. And so I think that, that and whether this is acute on chronic pancreatitis we're going for here or kind of a subacute, but I worry about that. Now what's interesting about pancreatitis here is that, that pancreatitis, the diagnostic criteria Physical exam has nothing to do with any of it, actually. You know, it's, you got to have two of the three, um, and you have to have uh, elevated lipase imaging findings consistent uh, and pain. It's not tenderness, it's pain. Um, and, and so I think, again, what we're looking for, though, in the patient with pancreatitis, and we're concerned about that, we're actually using a physical exam to say it's not something else. It's not cholecystitis. Uh, I don't think that this patient has a bowel obstruction. I don't think that this patient has massive splenomegaly or something like that, um, but instead that I think this patient has acute pancreatitis. And, and I think, remember that, that, that just because a physical exam test or a history question or a lab isn't good at diagnosis A, sometimes by decrease of probability of diagnosis B, it makes diagnosis A more likely, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So when you have a history or labs that are promoting one diagnosis, the exam is really helping you confirm that these others are lower yeah, likelihood. Exactly. Especially things that are bad. Remember, we all learned what about the pancreas in medical school, right? And like the, the treatment for, for pancreatitis is supportive care. Um, and so, uh, and often there's no role for repeat imaging. There's no role for repeat lab testing. You support that patient in the acute setting, but you don't want to have a problem where now this patient actually had cholecystitis, or excuse me, Col, um, cholangitis or cholecystitis. You want to, and there's some subtlety in that patient. Take the case the patient who's got gallstone pancreatitis, who actually has a common bile duct stone. That's a very challenging case to work up and manage because now I'm managing an infectious condition 
and an inflammatory condition altogether, one requires an operation, one doesn't. And so I think there's some subtlety there. Um, and remember, the, these things are, are interrelated. And, you know, I heard at Cash Lack Memorial, everybody has just one thing. Uh, and so that's helpful. That that that, yeah. that thing about modifying probabilities is, doesn't, doesn't come in when you have two things. <laughs> it works well for this episode. And so uh, another scenario, let's say in his episodes of abdominal pain, Mr. Coley actually says that his pain is really more on the side of his belly or on his flank and has been traveling down toward his groin. If you're concerned about something like kidney stones or nephrolithiasis, what are the exam maneuvers that you might be considering doing and how does this play a role into your approach? Yes. So nephrolithiasis, I think is one of those things that gets thrown into every differential diagnosis for abdominal pain but I think is actually really pretty unique among them and how it presents. And I think I would look to our colleagues in emergency medicine who are really good at this, and they know a patient has a kidney stone actually before that imaging um, comes because the patient has, is prototypically, with all the rest of these conditions, uh, the patient doesn't want to move. They want to lay really still. Uh, whereas with nephrolithiasis, the classic teaching there is that the patient can't get still. They can't get comfortable. The other thing to remember is that, that most of the rest of the abdominal pain is right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, lower abdominal pain. Nephrolithiasis pain actually is back pain um, near your kidneys, actually radiates then to the groin. Um, and so pain that actually radiates to the groin is pretty atypical for the rest, many of these other things. Um, and so when it actually says this pain travels down uh, into the perineum, that's actually a, a markedly different uh, condition, I think. And so a long way of saying that actually the, the, if you some cosmovertebral angle tenderness or palpation over the, the, the kidney um, can actually be suggestive of nephrolithiasis. And, and there's some flank tenderness actually can be markedly helpful. It's almost as good as gestalt for, yeah, for cholecystitis. And so, but I actually, what's really interesting as a parenthetical here though, is that the testing for nephrolithiasis is different. You're going to get a different test than you are for many of the other conditions. Um, because remember, a, a stone protocol CT doesn't have contrast um, because you got to see the stone. And so in contrast to many of the other things I'm going to be, I'm going to get a contrast CT. This is actually one of those things, a stone protocol CT um, is, is a different test and, and, and a renal ultrasound may be valuable. And, and, and we can talk about focus in a bit as well. But I, I think that, that it's just a, one of those things we lump together. And I just think it lives pretty differently in my mind than the rest of these conditions. Andrew, I just wanted to clarify, you were, you were mentioning flank tenderness and CVA tenderness or, or renal tenderness. Is, is there a difference there? I, I didn't, I never really thought of them as different. So again, I think this is an idiosyncrasy of the literature. Um, okay. Actually, and, and and this is a poster child for mesh terms. Actually, so so you know, and 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 that's actually really important. I'll make that point here that that when we look at those medical subject headings um, that are used to define the medical literature, disambiguation of terms is actually strikingly important, so that we don't call something fifteen different things. Yeah. Um, and that's not been done with a lot of this classical stuff, and so I don't think they're demonstrably different and. Um, and, and so, you know, when we teach CVA tenderness, that's costovertebral angle tenderness, um, that may, you know, that, that it is unclear to me in, based on the literature if that's demonstrably different than, than loin tenderness, um, except to say that the different authors have used it differently and had different findings. Okay. Which I think is a helpful critique of some of the likelihood ratios and how they vary based to your point on who's doing them and in what context. I will remind everybody that, that remember that people who've shown that Kerning and Virginsky sign were really good 
were Kerning and Brzezinski, right? <laughs> and so like, they're actually not terribly helpful tests at all, actually at all. Um, and, and so I think that, that again, we just have to, I think have have respect for that where this stuff came from, but also realize there's going to be idiosyncrasies and some problems because a lot of these studies are pretty old. Wado, I was on vacation last week, and I have to tell you, you know, it's obviously the way the world is. I didn't do any traveling. I didn't do anything terribly exciting. What I did do was sleep, and it was magical. And every <laughs> single night, I got eight hours of sleep. I would wake up at 10.30 in the morning, I, and just I felt like a million dollars. And it wasn't until early this week when I had the Sunday night anxiety that kept me from going to bed at a reasonable hour that I, I realized how much worse I feel when I don't get good sleep. And I will say, I have probably not slept better uh, since getting a, a new mattress from uh, from Birch. I just the, the mattresses are a dream, so even when I self-sabotage, I sleep better than I have in quite some time. So I just I could not be more delighted with it. I I also have a new birch mattress. I have a we we got it. We have a king size birch mattress. It is fantastic. My wife says she feels like she's sleeping in a cloud, and the kids are like they are now like just like hanging out in our bed like during the day, like reading books <laughs> in there because they love it so much. And uh, we're we're like doing bedtime stories in there at night. Uh, I I too feel like I'm sleeping better. My old mattress was just like. It's just like now I'm realizing rock hard. I guess I, I didn't know that. And uh, <laughs> I'm feeling well. I'm sleeping well. Birch makes organic, non-toxic mattresses made right here in America and shipped straight to your door with no contact delivery, free shipping, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. Paul, that that makes me feel pretty good about, about the Birch mattress. Um, I don't know that I'm at 100 nights yet, but I can tell you I'm not returning it. Uh, Birch mattresses are made right here in America with just three materials sourced straight from nature. There's organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs. The mattresses are certified organic, and they donate 1% of all sales to the National Forest Foundation, which plants trees in American forests. So if you're looking for a new mattress, check out birchliving.com slash curb and check it out. They have a 25-year warranty. That's 25 years, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll pick it up for you if you don't love it, but we're sure that you will. And right now, Birch is giving $200 off of all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattresses ordered and two free eco-rest pillows. Justin, so what's next for Mr. Coley? So far, we've given him peptic ulcer disease, pancreatitis. We just gave him kidney stones. What else can we do to this poor gentleman? You know, Mr. Coley's had a rough few years. So we we lose him to follow-up, and he comes back several years later and has just reported very frequent alcohol use. He's continued to drink daily throughout this time, and he's coming back now because he has a discomfort in his abdomen. He describes a bloating sensation, and he always feels full. He's gained lots of weight, but doesn't understand because he feels like he hasn't really been eating. And maybe we even notice, you know, some yellowing of the skin and he's just really looking uh, unwell. We're concerned that he has bloating due to ascites and may have new cirrhosis from liver disease from the alcohol. So in this new patient that we haven't really been following that much, uh, Andrew, how do we try to decipher if he has ascites, if he has cirrhosis, what, what are your thoughts on focusing the exam? 
Yes. Yeah, so, so I practice uh, at, at a liver transplant center. And so this is a condition that comes up a lot for me. Um, and trying to determine that, A, does this patient have ascites? That's gotten a lot easier. And I'll, I'll tell you why in just a moment. But then does this patient have cirrhosis? Does this patient have uh, alcoholic hepatitis? Or does this patient have a non-liver cause of uh, ascites, you know, hypervitaminosis A or something fun like that? So, so, so I think that, that as I approach these conditions, actually, when I'm going to approach someone with a, a concern for liver disease, I'm going to approach that patient with two separate pathophysiological mechanisms in my mind and look for signs and symptoms associated with both of those. And I actually think ke- keeping the separation is helpful, and certainly there's some interplay, but it's helpful in, in, in how we treat and manage this condition as well. So there are things related to the synthetic and detoxification effects of the liver, uh, and then there are things related to portal hypertension. And some of the findings we're going to look for are related to portal hypertension, and some are related to the former. Uh, and so I actually really find that to be a, a helpful thing um, in going through. But the other thing is my soapbox moment, soapbox moment about ultrasound, if I get that. So, so all of us learn bulging flanks, shifting dullness, uh, fluid wave. We learned all of those things in looking for ascites. The reference standard in all of those studies is ultrasound. And so if you can do the best test at the point of care and be way better than you ever could be with physical exam, you should just do this. So this is actually in my, I'm a, I teach physical exam and uh, some, a fair bit, and I've actually stopped teaching these things um, because I think availability of ultrasound is nearly ubiquitous enough uh, that, that I actually don't think it's good medicine to, to, to do these things. Um, especially because if the patient has ascites, you're going to need probably at some point to do a paracentesis, and you must not do that without imaging, like ever. That's just not okay anymore. And, and so I think that, that in all of these things, certainly if we look at the bulging flanks, the absence of bulging flanks is a little bit helpful. The, the fluid wave is actually probably the best test, but come on, like three people in the country can actually <laughs> do it. Um, well, it takes three people so to perform, so that's part of the problem. It takes three people to perform. Um, you know, one of the best quotes in the medical literature actually uh, is from one of the very early JAMA rational clinical exam series papers from the early 90s. And it's it's using, an, it does this patient, how to def, divine fluid in the abdomen is the article of the paper. Um, and, it, and it has this beautiful paragraph about the puddle sign. Yep. And so the puddle sign is actually like this medieval thing anyway is you get the patient up on all fours and then you get under them and you and you and you percuss for for to to feel feel if there's fluid in the patient's abdomen and so like uh, someday i'd like i'm just gonna do this but no and so anyway but it says this is challenging to perform or something like that and must not be done and so it said it might be good but don't do it and, and so it's just a beautiful Maybe we could put that in. The, you do, you in get the fired for trying the puddle sign. So you're, <laughs> I, you're like the, the chair of medicine walks into a room somehow, and you're laying under your patient on the bed, percussing their naked abdomen. It just doesn't sound like. It just yeah, it's just uh, some things were left in 1887 for a reason. So, so. <laughs> I remember I, I learned about this as a senior. I, the the intern that uh, this we had this intern who was brilliant, uh, John Woller, who. Was taught, and I think no he did the puddle sign <laughs> on a patient who had mildly altered mental status. Oh and my god! He was he was dedicated. It was definitely he was fired like, from re- residency. No, it was he, a good run. It was a good was, I, I learned a lot from him. So, so, so I think just to, to, the, I will say though that the 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 best the most sensitive physical exam finding for hypertension, or excuse me, for for, for uh, ascites related portal hypertension is actually lower extremity edema. 
90% of patients uh, with ascites due to portal hypertension will have lower extremity edema. And I think that's really important. That shows the pathophysiological mechanism is, is important. But a lot of the other things that we look for, so those are for ascites, but not for cirrhosis. But many of the other things that we see on exam and that there were that we learned for are actually sequelae, not of portal hypertension, but of impaired other liver function. And so things like gynecomastia um, has a likelihood ratio of seven for cirrhosis, dilated abdominal wall veins, reduction of body hair, actually. And, and I think the in my, it's been interesting as, I, as I've taught more and more in, in the presence of patients with liver disease. Um, these findings actually are bothersome to people, and I think it gives them empathy to teach about that. And so when I, when I talk to students, I take students to the bedside of a patient with liver disease, and I say, uh, especially for one of my male patients, I say, you know, do you ever have breast tenderness? And they say, yeah, it really hurts, and nobody's ever asked me about that. Uh, I think it's a clue into that, and it's one of those things that doesn't get asked about. Um, um, there's also a few other things as well that, that you can look for on exam, you know, the, the palmar erythema and things like that. They're related or related to de- decreased um, conversion of certain things in the liver because of uh, the impaired synthetic function. Um, now, one of the real challenges here uh, is that this is one of those idiosyncrasies of the literature here, where hepatomegaly has a positive likelihood ratio for cirrhosis. And that's not what we learned. <laughs> And so um, I have struggled every year. I teach the same course. I do the same paper and I struggle with that every year. Um, and, and I think that's one of those things that is in small studies. I don't know exactly what to make of it. Um, but it also is possible that there are patients in there who had hepatitis who didn't have biopsy confirmed cirrhosis in there. And if you look at a patient with alcoholic hepatitis, for example, does have hepatomegaly. A patient with a, uh, viral hepatitis before they have cirrhosis um, will often have hepatomegaly. It's a little problematic. I, it's one of those things that I, I'm humbled by. I, I don't know what to do with because we think of the patient with the nodule or shrunken liver um, as the prototypical and in, in, in imaging. By the way, remember, a lot of patients now are getting a diagnosis of cirrhosis. When I say things like nowadays, I feel really old. Uh, but when they are getting a diagnosis of cirrhosis based on imaging, they have a nodular cirrhotic liver appearing on a CT that they got for some other reason. Um, and I think that's a relatively new phenomenon as well. Andrew, I wanted to bring it back to the ascites, and selfishly, I would love to hear you describe how and where you're looking for ascites. Is it around the liver? Are you yeah. looking down uh, yeah. in the, around the pelvis? Can you can you what position what positioning is the patient in when yes. you're doing this? So so this is really where we've adapted as internists uh, the fast exam. Uh, and if you, the, the focus of abdominal sonography for trauma, us internists, we don't do anything fast. So we would call it like the slow methodical round, whatever. Free abdominal it. fluid, ex- FAF like exam or yeah, something. Exam. But, but essentially you're, you're adapting the, 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 the fast exam. And so you're going to look in the right upper quadrant. You're going to look in the pericolic gutters. You're going to look in the left upper quadrant. I'm knowing that the space, this fluid is going to be in different spaces on both of those. Um, and around the bladder as well. And so in the right upper quadrant, you're going to look. Um, the, the, this first place you're actually going to see it is in Morrison's pouch in the apposition between the, the liver and the kidney. Uh, on the left side, actually, you're actually going to see it in the, the, the space between the spleen and the diaphragm. You can see free fluid between the, the dia- between the spleen and the kidney, but often you'll see it actually superior to the diaphragm. And what's interesting here is that, that, uh, that pair, and then you're going to move the probe down on the right, and you're going to look now towards the tip of the liver and say, how much is there perihepatic ascites? And then down into the pericolic gutters, where you're going to do most of your sampling 
Abdominal ultrasonography performed by us at the point of care, though, has made it so it's easier to sample things that before we would never sample a, a ascites that was perihepatic ascites. If you ask me as a resident, would I be sampling perihepatic ascites? I have no way. Um, but now we're good enough with, with ultrasound-guided um, paracentesis that we can sample a smaller amounts of ascites rather than that patient who's got that big pocket um, in, in one of the lower quadrants. This is great. You know, I think uh, the point of care ultrasound has really become almost an extension of the physical exam, like a, a new stethoscope. One other component of the clinical decision-making that I think is very obviously a major part of decisions is, is lab testing, is, is diagnostic lab testing. And a lot of times the physical exam will help dictate whether the patient needs labs or how urgent those labs are. We have you know scenarios of Friday at five when the lab is closed, do they need to get urgent labs or is it something that can wait until Monday? We could talk about specifics, things like the lipase for pancreatitis or some hematuria for kidney stones. But um, in general, uh, can you talk out a little bit about how the physical exam might push us to specific labs or avoid specific labs or, or how do you see labs and physical exams working together in clinical decision-making? Yeah, that's a, so I actually think they're the same. I think that, that labs and physical exam and imaging are all just diagnostic tests that modify probabilities. I actually think if we get rid of the emotion in some of the physical exam, we would do really well. You know, that, that I think it's just crazy actually that, that you would not use a lab test that was worthless because it was named after somebody like, <laughs> you learned, like you just wouldn't do that. And so same thing, we shouldn't do that with labs. I think that, that when I approach how I'm going to, there are certain conditions that require labs to make that diagnosis. So, so for acute pancreatitis, labs are part of the diagnostic criteria. Remember though, that that's actually, when you look at the literature base for that, that's going to be problematic and have something called incorporation bias. And so if you have a, a test, a, a disease that's diagnosed and the index test, the thing you're examining it is used to help make that diagnosis, that test is going to look great. And so if you look at something for with lipase for pancreatitis, for example, it's a really good test for pancreatitis. Well, of course, it's a really good test for pancreatitis. It's part of the diagnostic criteria. And so the, the way you have to design, remember the gold standard treatment study is a randomized clinical trial. That is not the case in diagnostic testing. In diagnostic testing, you're doing parallel things. You're doing the, you're applying the index test and the reference standard to all the patients. You're applying them independently. Everybody gets them irrespective of the other ones. So it's just this literature is actually very hard to read if you're not used to understanding how this literature goes. Um, but I think irrespective of some of those those evidence-based medicine, I don't know if they're good enough to be called pearls, but but that that I think it's going to help me look at some of the urgency here. It's going to be very challenging to assess a patient in the emergency department and with abdominal pain without some basic labs. If their white count's 40, it's going to be very different than if their white count's normal. It's, going to, it's not going to slam dunk a diagnosis for me for anything, but it's going to make me think about the urgency and severity of this patient illness um, slightly differently. Same thing um, with a patient with right upper quadrant pain, the liver damage test, not liver function test, but liver damage tests, bilirubin. Uh, and actual test of liver function, the coagulation uh, numbers are actually strikingly important. Remember that patient with right upper quadrant pain with a normal bilirubin is very different than the patient with right upper quadrant pain with elevated direct bilirubin and now elevated LFTs, especially on hospital day two. Now they have elevated LFTs, higher T bilirubin. And then how often does it happen the bilirubin drops the next day because they pass the stone? Um, and so I think like looking through those and thinking about how does this, I think that the, for me, 
I'm going to put the most stock in these right upper quadrant, uh, the labs in assessment of the patient with right upper quadrant pain. I, I will say, however, uh, that, that in cirrhosis, which is not urgent, right? And, and I think we have to make a plug, by the way, that all ascites does need to be sampled at some point, uh, that, that we should make that diagnosis. And is this portal hypertension related to ascites or not is a really important thing. You know, to say, but the, the guidelines for the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease do suggest that every admit, every patient with liver disease who has ascites admitted to the hospital should have their um, ascites sampled. That's in the guidelines. And that's because spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is actually a subacute condition. Um, can be subacute. It's not always blazes the glory. But, but I think that the, looking at the labs around cirrhosis is really interesting because there, the, the, some of the tests that are not the things you would think of for saying, does this patient have cirrhosis? And, and I'll refer everybody to the JAMA paper called, does this patient have cirrhosis? Uh, uh, but but there, interestingly, if you look at the, the things like thrombocytopenia, um, a platelet less than 110 has the best positive likelihood ratio. Um, it's a likelihood ratio of nearly 10. So increasing your post-test probability by 45% that this patient actually has cirrhosis is a really good test. And it's amazing how many times I've had a patient who comes in with a concern for liver disease and their plates are 240. And astutely, my experienced gastroenterology colleagues will say, look, Andrew, I don't think this patient has cirrhosis. Maybe this is LCAP. Maybe this is something else. Uh, the other thing you'll see with, with labs that come into here is trying to count, put together a scoring system. And a lot of these, you know, if you go back to, uh, if you go back to, to appendicitis, Alvarado score, um, if you look at, look at the other scores, um, diagnostic scores are used when, uh, when individual tests on their own aren't enough to make a certain decision, but those tests are not independent. And so you can't just combine the likelihood ratios. And so that's why you have to validate that scoring system independently uh, to determine how helpful it is. But there are certain things like the, the, the Bonacini cirrhosis score is actually uh, derived from three values of, of the AST to ALT ratio, the platelet count, and the INR. Um, and they're actually, a score less than three is actually quite helpful. Um, a 0.3, decreasing likelihood of, um, of cirrhosis, and a positive is, is modestly helpful um, as well. And so um, I, I think that, that there is value in much of this, but it often is looking for sequelae um, and, and gathering some evidence. Unfortunately, none of this stuff is going to be good enough to make that diagnosis itself. Um, cirrhosis ultimately is a clinical diagnosis that's going to combine all of these things together. I will say, I'm increasingly thinking that the hard diagnosis to make when, when patients, is this alcohol hepatitis? Is this fibrosis? Is this cirrhosis? Again, you know, there's a spectrum here. And I think we have to realize that, that uh, sometimes we're very humbled by, by diseases like most of them that have spectrums. I remember once someone told me that uh, how does a radiologist diagnose cirrhosis on imaging? Uh, it's they do a chart review and see if the word cirrhosis is in the chart. And if so, they put it in yeah. the report. Yeah. yeah. So one of the scenarios we like to, you know, kind of bring up to to really test our physical exam is this Friday uh, at 5 p.m., the patient's in the clinic and we have to make decisions uh, about whether he needs to essentially go to an emergency department for labs um, or if he can stay home for the weekend and come on Monday. So we've talked about a few different scenarios, and we want to try to talk about how to sense the, di uh, sense the diagnosis using the physical exam. So scenario one to recap, Friday at 5 p.m., Mr. Cole has acute abdominal pain. Uh, can you recap for us again, sick versus non-sick? How do we know if he needs um, urgent care? 
Fantastic. So, so I'll start by saying Friday at five with a closed lab is why I became a hospitalist. So, uh, so, so I, I think that, that the, the first thing is, again, that sick, not sick is, is going to be the most important thing. Is this a guy who said, you know, I've had this doc for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, it's been bothering me. I decided to come in today because I got a day off work and I could come in. Or is it this is severe? And I think that eyeball test, which is different than Gestalt, but is, the eyeball test is how comfortable or uncomfortable, how sick or not sick is this guy? Um, I, I think it is probably the most important. And again, that, that we talked about this guy when he might have kind of this gnawing abdominal pain that's been present for a while. It's hard to eat. I think that probably doesn't need to be worked up today urgently. But if he's got acute right upper quadrant pain, I think most things, the tempo of the condition is probably very important to guide. And so something that showed up in the last day or two that I'm worried is going to get a lot worse over the next day or two um, and might actually require intervention via antimicrobial therapy, further imaging, or, or surgery, which I'm actually worried a guy with acute right upper quadrant pain might need. Um, so, so I think that I'm going to, that many of those, I'm going to address all of those things. Um, but it's going to be hard for me to send this guy, unless he really tells me it's been that subacute course, it's going to be hard for me to send this guy home. Fair. And so for the Mr. Cole, who, who does have right upper quadrant pain that we're maybe more concerned about biliary disease, uh, how does a physical exam kind of guide decisions for, labs or specific imaging in this case. Awesome. So I think, again, there we're going to say in this patient with right upper quadrant pain, and I'm concerned about biliary tract disease, is this guy jaundiced? Um, what do my some of my basic labs tell me? But the lab's closed, so I don't know that. I don't know if he's jaundiced. If he's not icteric, his belly's probably less than two and a half. Uh, but I think that, that I'm going to look at those things and say, what's the next test to do? And, and unfortunately, nothing's perfect enough here that I think it's hard to get just imaging without labs in a patient with right upper quadrant pain. I'm worried about that. But the next best test in that specific scenario is a right upper quadrant ultrasound. Uh, and that right upper quadrant ultrasound can be just a focused right upper quadrant ultrasound where you're going to be looking at the gallbladder, you're going to look at the cystic duct, you're going to look at the common bile duct, and you're going to look at the liver. Um, and you're going to say, are those things normal sized or big? And, and uh, what is the wall thickness of that gallbladder? That in combination with some of the labs to say, is the patient's bilirubin normal? Is the bilirubin elevated? Is going to help me determine, do I think this patient has acute cholecystitis? Do I think this is a guy who's just actually has gallstones and, and you know can get his gallbladder out at his leisure, if that's a thing, versus uh, actually needing potentially intervention on his bile duct in the form of an ERCP or even further imaging. Remember, this is actually a really hard plumbing problem uh, to figure out. Sometimes you got to go down the road for an MRCP. But I think that in the patient with right upper quadrant pain, that's pretty acute. I'm going to start with the right upper quadrant ultrasound and, and, and follow with some labs to determine what's going to happen next. This is great. And so in general, any other takeaways or clinical pearls you can give us on how the physical exam should guide clinical decision-making when approaching abdominal pain? Yeah. You know, I think that the thing I'm just going to talk about just for a minute here is the role of practice and feedback. Um, because this is an exam that's really important to get good at. And, and I think it's not an overly dramatic thing to say that you might save somebody's life if, if you find the find this. And, and so I think for our learners and if palpating abdomens and palpate the abdomen in your patient and say, is this rigid? Is this guarding? Is this patient have percussion tenderness, all of those things, I think are really important so that you can actually confidently say, I'm calling, hey, surgery attending, I'm calling this patient 
with acute peritonitis. Um, and I know now as a staff, when I do that, they take me seriously because I've learned what that looks like. And so I actually think that, that these things, um, to improve your precision, uh, we have to do a lot, a lot of these exams and get feedback about them. Because remember, the first patient you palpate who has voluntary guardian, you're going to say that patient's got a rigid abdomen. Um, and so you're never going to get better at it without practice. And none of these physical exams are slam dunk at all. But I think it's really important, especially in acute care, which is what I do, that I determine, does this patient need something done right now? Or do I have time to internal medicine the heck out of this over the next many hours? This is great. I, I, I'm very excited about this episode. I think it's a, a great approach, incorporates a lot of the hypothesis-driven exam. Um, we'll have great fodder for uh, infographics with the likelihood ratios. Thank you so much for joining us. I think yeah, thanks wonderful. for the opportunity. It was, a, it was a blast. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sam Mazur, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov does our website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. And we would be remiss if we didn't thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. And we should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye.